are in a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we're going to go to chapter 2 today, continue where we left off. I'd like to read just a little bit from the beginning of the chapter to you to catch you up on where we've been. We had in, in chapter 1 this magnificent picture of Christ as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the one that made all things and that all things were made through him and for him. Now, picking up in chapter 2, we'll uh, start in verse 4. Now I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, faith as you've been taught, and abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Now the two verses for today. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, surely we have great need as we stand before such a passage of your word for the illumination which you alone can give by your Holy Spirit that we might understand and feel the weight of such things more than merely words on a page, but have a grasp of the glorious truth that they announce and the significance of them for ourselves and this world, made by Christ and for Christ, through whom and for whom are all things, and in whom we pray. Amen. The story of Christ's birth is beautifully simple. Uh, the virgin is with child. Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem for the imperial census. Mary is great with child and gives birth and lays her son in a manger, there being no room for them at the end. Angels announce it to shepherds who are out in their fields by night. The simplicity of the story makes it possible to retell in countless plays and hymns and greeting cards. Even Linus gets it. These are shadows, uh, sh excuse me, shallows, shallows that little children can wade in. But at the same time, this history discloses an event so mysterious, so staggering, so difficult to describe that the early church's finest minds long struggled to represent this teaching in the most reliable form of words, so that in that manger was lying the great I am, El Shaddai, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, whose glory no man can see lest he be consumed. This almighty God is wrapped in swaddling clothes in a cattle shed. The one who thundered at Sinai, before whom Israel cowered in fear, has been born among men in Bethlehem. Something happened that in Bethlehem united what do not go together in our minds, the deity and the humanity. Glory 
and humility, omnipotence, and a helpless babe. And so it goes, of course, throughout the Gospels. Jesus will say, I thirst. And he will say, before Abraham was, I am. The one statement can only be made by a man, the other only by God. But both statements were made by the same person. What can the church say about such things? If he's God, in what sense has he now become man? How much like you and me is he? How could someone need food and drink and sleep and yet be pure spirit, omniscient and omnipotent? Early on, someone could scarcely believe that the one whom they encountered was actually a man. In John's first letter, we read about some who were in grave error teaching that he hadn't actually come in the flesh. It only seemed like it. Others speculated later that he was some highly powerful created being, some mixture of human and divine, a kind of superman. Uh, Others said, no, he was a demigod. But how could he be the god of the Bible precisely because the Gospels made him so human? I suppose that all these mistakes were predictable. But back and forth, the opinions went in the history of the church and each one being corrected by the word of God until the church for all time settled her mind on what may be safely said about this great mystery. Namely, that he was truly God and truly man. Equal with the Father according to his deity and equal with us according to his humanity except for sin. He's one person in two natures, the divine and the human, without conversion or composition or confusion, but indivisibly and inseparably one. They were able to state the mystery, but what is the meaning of it? And what actually happened so long ago in Bethlehem? And why does that matter now to us? That's what we'll be considering today. The... uh, Standard Puritan outline, if you're taking notes, exposition, doctrine, application. What does it say? What does it teach? What does it mean for me? Let's consider the passage before us. In the passage that I've read to you in verse 9, you notice that Paul tells us nothing about the baby in the manger or shepherds or wise men. He mentions no details about the Lord's birth at all. But he does tell us what happened when Jesus was born. He explains that the fullness of the Godhead came bodily to dwell in Jesus. Now, I know that we don't use the term Godhead very much anymore, uh, but Godhead is an older word for God's nature. Uh, Godhead was often contrasted with manhood, man's nature. It's actually the same root, and I have no idea why we don't say Godhood, but we say Godhead. It sounds a little strange, but that's the meaning. In English, we talk about servanthood or womanhood, but we say Godhead, the same idea, but it's very confusing. So most translations just give up and say deity or divine nature. But the point is all that it means to be God. In Jesus dwells all that it means to be God, the fullness of deity, Paul says. Now, what does deity mean to the Christian mind? Well, he is the ruler, the the creator, the judge of the earth, the God who talked with Abraham, who led his people out of Egypt, 
the one who gave Moses the law. And with such ideas in mind, it's staggering to realize with awe that the fullness of the Godhead is dwelling in Jesus. And Paul emphasizes it this way, saying it dwells in him bodily. That this is the great event that took place in Jerusalem, uh, in Bethlehem rather, where we find the all-powerful, all-knowing God and a weak, helpless infant together in the same person. Now, it's not difficult to believe that there's an omnipotent God. It's certainly not difficult to believe that there are helpless babes, especially in this church. But what's difficult to believe is that they could exist in the same person. The omnipresent God who is everywhere and a baby who, like all human beings, can only be at one place at one time, in the same person. The God who needs nothing and a baby who needs everything, in the same person, how can this be? So that when Jesus was sitting by the well in Samaria, or weeping over the death of a widow's son, or sleeping in the back of the boat, he was still upholding the universe, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. In one place, we read that this Jesus knows all things. In another place, we read that he didn't know the day or the hour that he would return. All that in the same person. Like any of us, he had to grow, we read, in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. The same Jesus, he had a divine will by which he made the world and came into it and continues to rule it. And he has a human will. We see him, for example, agonizing in Gethsemane. His human soul, he says, overwhelmed with sorrow, yet determined nevertheless to go forward despite all the pain and anguish of a man. In short, without ceasing to be fully God, he has now become, now and forever, fully man. So do you understand what I'm saying? I don't, and you don't either. In fact, no one knows. I can state the truth, but I can't comprehend it. Uh, but this is what the incarnation means. Two utterly distinct natures, so fundamentally different from one another, one infinite and the other finite, one divine and the other human, now existing in the same Jesus. That is the heartbeat of our faith. And maybe this profound mystery is why Christians don't think about the Incarnation very carefully or deeply, and maybe we prefer to contemplate the cross, which maybe makes a little more sense to us. Because one man dying for others is easily understandable and has plenty of parallels in human life. But someone being both the living God and at the same time a helpless baby in his mother's arms is completely beyond our experience or comprehension. The fact is, our mind can understand so little of what God is and what he's done, but we need to ponder it much more deeply than we do. For the proper state of mind for a Christian is that of wonder, astonishment, and amazement, even as we rejoice in truly knowing him. This peaceful picture we have of the babe in Bethlehem is very reassuring, but the more that we think about it, the more unsettling it is. The Apostle John, he once reclined on Jesus' breast at the table, so near and dear he was to him. 
And that same John on Patmos, when he saw Jesus in his glory, he fell at his feet as though he were dead. Both of these in the same person. Have you ever been so literally overwhelmed by something great, so wonderful or beautiful that you were dumbstruck, unable to speak, just silenced by what you felt and saw? Well, something happened in Bethlehem that was so impossibly high and deep, so far beyond our understanding and yet so important that we ought to be hushed with mystery and wonder. Only God himself could do such a thing, and only our God would do it and has done it for us, becoming flesh to dwell with us while never once being anything less than he has always been and always shall be. So, I tell you, here is the great mystery announced in verse 9, that Jesus, that in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, the Godhood, the divine nature, bodily. That is the meaning of these words. But now we consider their importance before we go on to verse 10. Um, as I mentioned earlier, our, our whole faith is actually built on this foundation. The famous theologian Francis Turretin explained it this way, our mediator had to be the God-man to accomplish these things, man to suffer, God to overcome, for neither could God alone be subject to death, nor could man alone conquer it. Man alone could die for men, but God alone could vanquish death. This is why he had to be who he was. But when people don't understand this fundamental thing about who Jesus is, they start to go wrong quickly in many ways. So you know that people these days are asking a lot of questions about Jesus, uh, hard questions about um, the Christian faith. For example, some people are asking, well, how can the death of one single individual so long ago on a Roman cross be of any help or significance now for the forgiveness of my sins today? Or they ask, how can Jesus be so exclusive, so essential to salvation when there have been so many other founders of religion in the history of mankind? Or again, some people object to the accounts of Jesus' miracles because these are just unbelievable to modern, scientifically-minded people. How can anyone walk on water? or heal a man born blind, or control the weather with a word, or raise the dead, or himself be raised from the dead. It's too much. But as author J.I. Packer well pointed out, these are not the hard questions about Christianity. In fact, these aren't hard questions at all. The only really hard question, the only staggering claim that we make is that God has become man. And once you accept that, once you understand what the birth of Jesus means, all those difficulties evaporate. I mean, if Jesus is indeed the eternal God come in human nature to save us from our sins, it's only natural that he perform works that would astonish us and absolutely stretch people's minds to the limit. We should not be amazed that he's the only way to God because he is God. Come to us. Further, he says, nothing less would do for our salvation. And this is why his death on the cross is of such great worth, such stupendous importance to the whole world and its salvation. Because Christ, the mighty creator, 
is the one who has died on that cross for his creature's sin. The cross is just not the cross unless you understand the Lord of glory is there bleeding on it. Or as the babe of Bethlehem is our Emmanuel, or Jeremiah calls him Jehovah our righteousness, everything else makes sense. Everything else is explained by this. Everything else goes back to this. This is the fundamental miracle that makes everything possible. Indeed, once you encounter Jesus Christ for yourself, then you know that this is the only possible explanation for him, the Incarnation. This is the only thing that can answer our question. This is the only thing that unlocks every door. Do you understand? This, this season for many is a season of joy, but maybe you find yourself hollow. Maybe questions have burrowed their way into your mind and eaten away at the very heart of your faith. Well, if that is so, I tell you, you need to start back again in Bethlehem. You need to have your eyes open to see this great welcome of heaven to earth, the Creator coming among His creatures incognito, here to live our life and win our salvation from sin and death. And I tell you, every human story of adventure, every story of sacrificial love, every story of desperate struggle pales in comparison, absolutely pales in comparison to this. Or Samuel Rutherford uh, describes it in almost poetic words. He would be of blood to us. Not only come to the sick and to our bedside, but he would lie down and be sick taking on him sick clay and be in that condition of clay a worm and not a man that he might pay our debts. And he would borrow a man's heart to sigh for us, man's eyes to weep for us, his spouse's body, legs and arms to be pierced for us, our earth, our breath, our life, and soul, that he might breathe out his life for us. A man's tongue and soul to pray for us. And yet he would remain God, that he might perfume the obedience of a high priest with heaven. And give to justice blood that ran in the veins and body of God. Oh, what love. Christ, he says, would not entrust our redemption to angels, to millions of angels, but he would come himself and in person suffer. He would not give a low and a base price for us, clay. He would buy us with a great ransom so that he might overbuy us and none could overbid him in his market for souls. If there had been a million, millions of more believers and many heavens without any new bargain, his blood should have bought them all. And all these many heavens should have smelled one rose of life. Oh, we underbid and undervalue that prince of love who did overvalue us. We will not sell all we have to buy him. 
though he has sold all he had, and himself too, to buy us. End quote. Now, centuries ago, friends, people, men and women, went into monasteries and convents for their whole lives. They locked themselves away so that they could contemplate Christ, this great mystery of the living God come in the flesh. That was a mistake, but not so great a mistake as is committed by Christians today who hardly ponder this astounding truth at all though it is the source and wellspring of everything we believe and hope. How frequently the Bible commands us to behold Him, and how infrequently we obey to our shame. Too much attention is paid to what you might call the practical details of the Christian faith, and not nearly enough to its heart and center. And this is devastating the evangelical church today, not to dwell on it long, but I've mentioned before that some 43% of people in evangelical churches say that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. An astonishing number. With all the songs these days that are sung to Jesus and all the prayers these days that are being prayed to Jesus, the church hasn't stopped to ask even what Jesus we are talking about. And people are just looking for hope and happiness. Meanwhile, they starve for want of the source of all, the real Jesus. And also, brothers and sisters, it is our lack of a living, glorious sense of Christ as Emmanuel, God with us, and of the greatness of the salvation He's won, coming into the world for us, that keeps us creeping when we should be running. It keeps us crawling when we should be leaping and dancing. And in pondering these things, you can just begin to discover something of how deep and high and breathtakingly great is the love of Jesus Christ. And if you will treasure up these truths in your hearts, which are greater than all the world, then I tell you, you will have a lifetime of mind-stretching wonders, and imponderable joys, and holy mysteries to relish. But that's the significance of all these things. And that is why Paul wishes to impress this on his readers as he then applies it to them personally here in verse 10. So as we finish, let's consider today how now this applies to us. We've considered the meaning of the passage, its great significance for everything in our faith. And now verse 10, the application. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Or uh, the NIV nicely reads, And you have been given fullness in Christ. That's a nice choice of words because fullness in verse 9 in my translation and complete in verse 10 are actually the same root word in the original. So the NIV makes it the same. You've been given fullness in Christ. That, that uh, captures the, the, the double meaning. If false teachers, in other words, are coming along saying, you know, I got the rest of the story for you. I can tell you the rest about him. I can tell you the, the secret to the Christian life, the secret to mystery, fullness, maturity, completeness. 
If they come along and promise such things, Paul reminds them there is no greater fullness than that which we have already received in Christ, who is himself the fullness of God and who commands all authority and power. There is nothing else that you need but Jesus. There is nothing else but what is in Jesus. Look, if our Savior is fully God, what more do you need to be filled? Which reminds me of something the Free Church missionary John Duncan once said and recalling his conversion to Christ. He said, you know, when I heard of all the good things that were offered in his market, I said to myself, I will marry the merchant and they'll all be mine. Well, here it is with Christ. That's the truth. In Christ, we have everything. We've been granted fullness of joy, not fleeting happiness. Fullness of purpose, not aimless wandering. Fullness of love, not empty hearts and relationships. Fullness of strength, not crippling fear. Fullness of wisdom, not endless questioning and speculation. It is ours, yes, to be more deeply rooted in Christ, to walk in Christ. That is true, but we need nothing more. And in context, Paul goes on to list things to say, look, some man-made traditions, what are they going to do? Some strict discipline or religious ritual, some fine-sounding philosophy, what can that add to this one? What can that add to the mighty Savior we have received in Jesus? There are no powers or spirits or visions or angels that we need to learn or appease because they are all subject to him. All principality and power is his. You know, people are interested in angels again today. Well, he says, what can angels give you that you don't have in Jesus the ruler of them? If you have him, you have it all. Without him, you've got nothing. And, you know, maybe you really want joy this time of year. Well, I tell you, the way to get joy is not just to think about joy, but to think about Christ. Because joy is the inevitable atmosphere of heart that is taken up with infinite greatness coming down to you and to me. That is the source of joy. And it's the same with peace and strength and comfort and assurance, hope and love, anything else you could name in the Christian life, because they all come from Christ. Think of his perfect sympathy as man, his fellow feeling with you, his understanding and sympathy joined with almighty power, that not only does he know what you truly need, he is able to give it. Think of his terrible suffering in your place. Think of the infinite value of it, able to cover all of your sins and much more, those of a great multitude from every tongue and tribe and nation in the world. What confidence, what strength, what courage will be the portion of the one who will but ponder a little deeper the glorious mystery of the incarnation of God, who we have received in Jesus. So Paul says, uh, understatement of the century, you're complete in him. You just need to start back at the heart of the matter. You cannot live a Christian life as you should without this. You will not make it if you're just trying to do what you're supposed to do without being filled with the fullness of Christ. Uh, radio preacher Tony Evans told the story. He says, one year my wife wanted some wrapped boxes to use for decoration. She took eight empty boxes and she wrapped them to use as decoration at our front door. Those boxes sat in the front of our house, impeccably wrapped, topped with bows, but empty. 
I didn't worry about a thief coming and stealing any of the wrapped boxes in front of the house. There wasn't anything in them. A lot of folks, he says, are well wrapped, but there's nothing going on inside. Unfortunately, today, many people don't know what it means, he says, to be truly blessed. They just want to be well wrapped. Well, my dear friends, if that's so, it is time for you to be truly blessed. The one way to be filled with the completeness of Christ, the whole fullness of God himself dwelling in him bodily, is to have him as yours. You can't simply go one more step in this so-called Christian life of yours unless you receive him in the fullness that he alone can give, the real Jesus as he is. And you will not make it if you're just telling yourself, well, maybe he's not quite God. Oh no, that's a bridge that's broken at the far end. And a savior who's not quite man is a bridge broken at this end. But the true Jesus can be both with us and for us. He alone will bear our sins away, sympathize with our human weakness, bring us all the way home. He is the only one who can carry your destiny in his mighty, loving hands. So it can't be right if you're not trusting and following one as great and as gracious as this. Will you not commit yourself to him, the real Jesus, this very day? This is the application of these things to all of us. In conclusion, because the babe in the manger was also the Lord of glory, because he was not just a man, but truly God, that means that you can find him today. The Christian history is in one respect completely unrepeatable. There will never be again an incarnation of God the Son. There will never again be the life of God himself being lived out incognito in this world. There will never again be a man born of woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. All that can only happen and only need happen once. And for that reason, there will never be another angelic announcement to shepherds as there was that night. But in another respect, this Christmas history is being repeated every single day as men and women, as boys and girls, of every people and nation and language, hear the joyful announcement of Jesus Christ. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And follow that news until they find him, the incarnate Son of God, and welcome him with joy and love him and entrust themselves to him. For he who seeks, says the Lord, finds May it be the everlasting joy that each one of you share with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the great gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus, and for our fullness in him. We pray that you would make us truly to feel ourselves full and complete in him, who is the head over every power and authority, that we might have grace to walk in him, be rooted in him, built up in him, established in the faith, overflowing with gratitude, Protect us from deception, from false claims, false teachings that would rob us of all the riches that we do have in Christ. We rejoice that such a Savior has come, a mighty one who has 
been able to put away our many sins, cancel the charge of our indebtedness, pay what is owed, nailing that uh, law to the cross that stood opposed to us. May we forever be lost in wonder and joy in Him, filled with His fullness as we've received Jesus Christ our Lord.